Good morning. This morning's sermon is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 through 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 through 9. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you, to the people of Macedonia, saying the, the Achaeans have been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that your boasting, our boasting about you may not, be, may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an excursion. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower Pastor Paul, Lord God. I pray for clarity of the gospel message, Lord God. I pray that our members would know, treasure, and speak for Christ. I pray that God would draw out unbelievers and save people in this service today. I pray for attentiveness of the congregation for the message that will be set upon their ears, minds, and soul. I pray that every member would use his and her gifts to serve our church family. And I thank those who, who have signed up for our practical needs ministry so far, and I look forward to more to, to get involved. I pray for the guests and the sense of God's presence and the love of God's, in, in the love of God's people. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the freedom in our country to have Bibles in our homes and be able to read them, to read it out loud, and to sing the gospel messages like we have earlier. I pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Good morning. As we begin our sermon, I have a question for all of the kids and students in here. Have your parents ever said to you, I know I don't need to remind you about this, but... And then they go on to remind you about something they think that you've forgotten. Like, I know I don't need to remind you about this, but did you brush your teeth today? I know I don't need to remind you about this, but is your homework done? I know I don't need to remind you about this, but have you cleaned your room? And you respond, yes, mom, I brushed my teeth. Yes, dad, 
My room is clean. Yes, mom, the homework is done. Parents that love us like to nag us about stuff like brushing our teeth and doing our homework so that we, as our, their kids, aren't embarrassed when we go out in public and so that we don't reflect poorly on them as our parents. Well, the same type of thing is happening with the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church in the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you are a guest with us today, we have been preaching through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we are currently in a section in chapters 8 and 9 that is looking at stewardship and giving and generosity. The past two messages on this section have dealt with a collection that the Apostle Paul was overseeing for the saints in Jerusalem to meet their needs. And in the first five verses of chapter 9, Paul continues to give the directions about this collection. Now, he's already spent a good deal of time talking about this and encouraging the Corinthians to give generously and laying out all the details about this collection and the integrity of the men that he was sending to handle the money. But Paul starts in chapter 9 and verse 1 with the phrase, It is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. That word superfluous means not really necessary or redundant. Roughly translated, Paul is basically like a nagging parent talking to their children, saying, I don't mean to bring this up again, but let me talk a little bit more about this collection for the saints. Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthians would follow through with the commitment that they made to give. So as we heard in Dan's message two weeks ago, he was sending Titus and two other brothers on ahead to take care of everything. Paul wanted the Corinthians to be ready to give when the time came and if they weren't, he says, you know, it's going to be embarrassing for me and for you. One commentator said that in these final instructions about the collection, Paul wanted to ensure this collection expressed all the generosity that he knew the Corinthians were capable of. Now, what I find interesting about these first five verses is what Paul says in verse 2. He says, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, that was another name just for the area where the Corinthian church was, Achaia has been ready since last year, last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. We read about these Macedonian believers, uh, that they were in poverty, and they were experiencing a trial. And Paul says that when he told these poor and afflicted Macedonians about the Corinthians giving to this collection, it was so encouraging and exciting to the Macedonians that it says they were, they were stirred up. They were inspired to give and to participate themselves. In fact, they're, they're so pumped up 
about giving when they hear about what the Corinthians were doing, that in chapter 8, verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that they gave beyond what he even thought was possible for them to give. And so one thing I think we can learn from this verse is that we shouldn't be afraid to share testimonies of how God is at work in our lives through our generosity. The Apostle Paul wasn't. He was glad to share that. So don't shy away from sharing stories of how God has enabled you to be generous. You never know what that may encourage and inspire in someone else. It's been true in my life. The examples that I see of generosity in our church have inspired me to be more generous. Now, when we read a section like this, we want to know what's the point. When you open your Bible to read during the week, you're trying to figure out what's the point. When there's a preacher up here like me, at some point they're going to say, okay, here's the point. Well, in verse 6, the Apostle Paul is very kind to us, and he says, here's the point. So if you want to know what the point is, verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul didn't want to just remind the Corinthians about this collection. He wanted to stir them up to even greater generosity. And so he does this by sharing the principle of sowing and reaping. Sowing is the planting of seed And reaping is the gathering of the harvest. At planting time, a farmer would take a bag of seed and he would scatter it in his field. A farmer that was planting a field wouldn't put down just a few seeds. See, for the farmer, seed is harvest potential. The more seed that the farmer puts down, the greatest, greater potential there is for the harvest. If the farmer didn't put down much seed, there wouldn't be much of a harvest. So the farmer's not going to put down a few seeds. He is going to put down a lot of seed. He is going to scatter seed all over his field so that the whole field is covered with seed. I can do that. My dad does the carpets. <laughs> now, when a farmer when a farmer is scattering seed, he is not concerned about running out of seed. And when a farmer is scattering seed, He's not worried about having enough seed for next year. When a farmer is sowing seed, he is concerned about one thing, harvest potential. See, the more seeds that he plants, the greater potential there is in the harvest. And so for us, for the Christian, 
Seed is our giving of our time and our energy and our resources and our money. And specifically, here in this context, Paul is talking about financial giving. So the simple point that Paul is making in verse 6 is that the more we give, the greater the harvest potential will be, and the less we give, the less the harvest potential will be, right? That's what he's saying. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that if we give more, we're going to get more money and stuff. If you give more, God may bless you with more. But that will be so that you can give even more. God does that sometimes. He sees someone that is faithfully handling what he has entrusted to them, and he blesses them with even more so they can be even more generous than they had been. But this verse on sowing and reaping is often twisted. And people use this to teach that when we give generously, it guarantees that our life is going to go well. And it guarantees that God's just going to bless us like crazy. My friend Tim, many, many years ago, was listening to a TV preacher. And this guy was, was saying this, you know, the, the more you give, the more you're going to get. And this preacher uh, was asking people to call in and sow a seed of $100 in his ministry. And this preacher promised that if you sowed a seed of $100 in his ministry, that you were going to be blessed in some great way. Uh, my friend Tim, he, he called up and he said, hey, if I sow that same seed of $100 in my local church, will it have the same effect? The answer was no. This preacher was after a, a harvest of selfish, personal gain not the harvest of gospel fruit in the local church. And so the harvest blessing of sowing abundantly might not be more money or more stuff. It might be something like joy or contentment. Maybe if you sow bountifully, you will reap greater joy. There's a woman in our church and her life hasn't always been easy. She's had some things happen to her that really had the potential to steal her joy. Now, this woman doesn't have a very high-paying job. She lives a regular life, drives a regular car, lives in a regular house. And this woman, most years, gives about half of her salary in her regular giving. Year after year, half of her salary, she gives away. She sows bountifully. And what is the harvest? Well, God has provided for all her needs, and he has cared for her. But God hasn't blessed her with more stuff. God hasn't blessed her with more money. She hasn't gotten a, a significant bonus. She hasn't gotten a major salary raise. Money hasn't fallen out of the sky. You know what the harvest is in her life? 
It's joy and contentment. This woman, despite facing hard situations in her life, is one of the most joyful people that I know. Joy every time I interact with her. From all I can see in her life, she's content with what God has provided for her. And I think this is because she has found the secret to joy and contentment. And that's that Jesus is her treasure. Not stuff, not a big bank account. Jesus is her treasure. Now, if she didn't give away half her income, she could have a nicer car. She could have a bigger house. She could go to the Caribbean each year. But she knows that that stuff and those experiences won't bring her true contentment. That stuff is not her treasure. Jesus is. In Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable. He told a story. It's only a one-verse story. He said this, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Probably heard this before. This man's walking along in a field all by himself and he stumbles upon some treasure. He realizes the value of that treasure and so he quickly buries it. And then the Bible says in joy he goes and he sells everything that he has in order to buy that field. Because he knows whoever owns the field owns the treasure in the field. In Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said this, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then listen to this, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This woman who gives half of her income each year, her true treasure is Jesus. As she gives she is storing up for herself treasure in heaven. She gives freely and generously, and her heart follows her money. Where her treasure is, there her heart is also. Her treasure is Jesus, and her life is marked by the joy of Jesus and contentment with what he provides. Now, the harvest that we reap from our giving, it's not always seen, and it's not always personally beneficial to us. We don't sow seeds of generosity for our own benefit. Ultimately, we give to benefit others. So all of our giving 
should be rooted in the desire to see people come to know and follow Jesus Christ. We give so we can have an eternal impact. And so for the Christian, the harvest that we are focused on as we sow seeds of generosity is that so souls are saved. Here at Green Tree, we give so that lost people in Atlantic City and Frankfurt and Belarus and Central Asia and Egg Harbor Township can have a local church with a local pastor and local Christians reaching out to them. Here at Green Tree, we give so that a young mom can come to women's Bible study and be encouraged and grow. Here at Green Tree, we give so that curriculum and supplies can be purchased so our children and students can be taught about Jesus. Here at Green Tree, we give so that pastors can give their time to study the Bible, develop leaders, and lead us to be a healthy church. Sometimes I find it helpful for me just to to look around at our church and to see the harvest of generosity of the seeds that have been sown. The testimony that Kathy shared this morning, thank you uh, for doing that. Um, Jerry Devlin is in heaven today because Kathy and Nick reached out to her and because of Christianity Explored, but also because of your faithful giving. So consider your own generosity. Do you sow sparingly or do you sow bountifully? Evaluate your harvest potential. Are you sowing to maximize harvest potential? And how might God bless your generosity? In verse 7, Paul gives us three heart motivations for giving. You see, giving is not merely a financial decision. Giving is not a, a percentage or a line item in our budget. Verse 7 says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. And so ultimately, giving should flow from our heart. The first heart motivation that Paul gives is greed-motivated giving. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly. To be reluctant means that you're unsure or unwilling to do something. If you're reluctant to give, it's probably because you want to hold on to something for yourself. A greedy heart makes it hard for us to give. If greed is your heart attitude, then you're going to hold on to more for yourself. A greed-motivated giver won't give generously. A greed-motivated giver will give sparingly because they are afraid they won't have enough and they want to hold on to more for themselves. The second heart motivation is a guilt-motivated giver. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, 
not reluctantly or under compulsion. Under compulsion means feeling forced to give, feeling like it's being, being squeezed out of you. A guilt-motivated giver feels like they are being pressured to give, meaning their giving feels more like a tax than a gift. A guilt-motivated giver won't give with joy or generosity. And so as Paul is dealing with the Corinthians and this collection, he didn't want them to be greed-motivated. And he didn't want them to be guilt-motivated. He didn't want them to feel pressured to give. But Paul wanted to stir them up to great generosity, so he gives a third option. Grace-motivated giving. A grace-motivated giver gives freely and generously. Paul says at the end of verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver is motivated by the grace that they have been shown first by God. God loves cheerful givers with generous hearts because they are a reflection of Him as a generous God. God loves when our lives mirror His own heart. But today, you may be here, and you may not think of God as a generous God. You don't see Him as loving. You don't see Him as kind. You don't see Him as caring. If you're honest, when you think about God, distant may be the best way you could describe Him, maybe angry, uninterested. To you, the idea of God being cheerful is a very foreign thing. And if that's how you feel today, I can understand that. And there's probably a lot of people sitting around you that at some point in their life, they felt the same way. And if that's you today, what I would say to you is consider that God has done the most generous thing that anyone has ever done. God was generous enough to create this world for us. It's an incredible world if you stop and look around. It's full of beauty and tastes and sounds and life that's just vibrant and incredible. God was generous enough to give each one of you breath in your lungs for one more day. But the most generous and loving thing that God has ever done was to send Jesus, His one and only perfect Son. Jesus left a, a life of joy and glory in heaven. And He came to earth to live a life like ours that was full of, of pain and weakness and regularity. Jesus lived our life, but He did it with perfection. He never disappointed God. He never distanced himself from God relationally. Never did anything evil. He never thought anything unkind or unloving. But God put Jesus to death on the cross to take the punishment for all of our wrong thoughts, 
all of our wrong actions, all of our wrong desires. We have all rejected God's rule over us. We deserve death and God's punishment for our sin. But Jesus was given to die for us. Jesus was given to die for all of your sin. The most loving thing that someone could ever do is to give their life for someone else. In the book of Romans, in chapter 5, we read, beginning in verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though you might not think of God as loving and generous, God loves you, even if you don't think he does. And he proved that love through sending Jesus to die on the cross to take the punishment for all of your sin. He proved his love for you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So today, if you struggle to see God as gracious, if you struggle to see God as a cheerful and giving God, look at what he gave you on the cross. He gave everything to save you. There is no one that is more giving than God. So, grace-motivated giving is when we understand the generosity that God has first shown us in giving Jesus, and then that grace moves us to be a generous people. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, and if you have not read that book, it is excellent. If you want a copy, I have a few. I'd be glad to give you one, or I think we have it in the bookstore. Uh, but in uh, his book, he says this, as thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. When God's grace touches you, you can't help but respond with generous giving. Now, if that idea of being a generous giver sounds good in theory, but in practice seems hard for you. If you say, well, I would like to give more, but I'm afraid I'm not going to have enough. If you say, I would, I would like to give more, but I just, I don't have anything extra to give. If that's how you feel, then the truth in verse 8 is going to be an incredible help and encouragement to you. There is a point in verse 8 that helps us with the idea that we just can't be generous now because we don't have enough to be generous with. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you 
So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We tend to think, if I had as much as that family, then I would give more. If I had that income with that job, I would be more generous. But the point of this verse is that God provides what you need to be generous. And what you need to be generous is what you have now. Right now, you have all you need to be generous because God gives the grace to enable your generosity. So the salary that you make now, the house that you live in, all the stuff that fills it, all the stuff that you're grateful for in your life is what God has provided for you, not just for your benefit, but so that you can be generous now. So don't wait for your situation to change to start being generous. Don't wait to be generous until you think you have enough to be generous with. That's a never-ending cycle. Be generous with what God has provided you with now. Let me give you two personal examples of how verse 8 has played out in my life. My wife and I both grew up in homes where our parents were generous givers. Both of our families, from what I understand, would uh, tithe. They would give 10% of their income and uh, a lot of times beyond that. And so we both grew up with this example And when we got married, it was our conviction that we would give generously. And so since uh, the day we've been married, we've given 10% in our regular giving. Well, a few years ago, I was reading some stuff on giving. And I felt that God had put it on my heart that we should be giving a little bit more than 10%. And at the time, the the church was struggling, and I felt we had just as much responsibility as anyone else Uh, to be helping with that, and so we increased what we were giving. But as a growing family, uh, things were starting to get tight for us financially. We tried to make all the cuts that we could, uh, but it, it just never seemed to be enough. We decided, though, that we wouldn't reduce what we were giving. Uh, And there were times where we would give a little extra maybe to support someone going on a mission trip or another ministry or something like that. But we were personally hurting. And then out of the blue, someone started giving us envelopes filled with cash. And over the period that they were giving them to us, it it ended up being a few thousand dollars. And it met all of our needs at the time. And it enabled us to continue to give what we felt God had called us to give. The second story of how verse 8 has played out in my life is when Dan and Britt were planning on attending the Sovereign Grace Pastors College. As we were challenged to Uh, help support them, my wife and I prayed about what we might give. And we decided that we could swing $10 a month for the time that they were at the pastor's college. 
But honestly, we both wanted to do more than that. They're our dear friends. We love them, and we just, we wanted to do more. And we felt God was calling us to do more, uh, but it, it just, it didn't seem possible. As I was thinking and, and praying about what we should give, uh, the figure of $1,000 is what I felt God was asking us to give. And it, it just didn't seem possible. But then a few weeks later, God blessed us in a way that we weren't expecting, and we were able to give the $1,000 to help send them to the pastor's college. Now, I don't tell you these stories so you think I'm something great. I don't tell you these stories out of pride, though there's, there's pride in my heart. Just know that. Um, I tell you these stories because what verse 8 says has been true in my life. God has always, always, always provided what we have needed to survive and to be generous. When verse 8 says God is able to make all grace abound, the word there is all. We're not talking about a little bit of grace. The word all means abundant or overflowing or excessive grace. What does the verse say is the purpose of that excessive grace? So that we can have sufficiency in all things. Meaning having everything you need, having enough. And when does it say that God provides enough for our needs? When? When? All the time. Why? So that you may abound in every good work. What this verse says is that at all times, God will give you everything that you need to have enough and to be generous. And so that means there's never a time when we can't be generous. It means you never have to worry that being generous is going to lead you to not having enough. It means you don't have to fear that gospel-centered giving is going to leave you in need. I have never, ever, ever heard a testimony of someone who gave so much that they didn't have enough for themselves. But I have heard countless testimonies and seen countless examples in this church where people gave generously and God provided for their needs. You might say, well, sounds good, but when I look at my bank account, there's nothing there to give. Honestly, it could be that your spending priorities are a little bit out of balance. It could be that for you, going to a written budget would help you get a hold of your finances. It could be there's debt that you need to deal with. It could be that you need to learn to live on less than you make. If you find yourself there, I'd encourage you 
uh, we would be glad to do financial counseling to talk through that with you. Or uh, sometimes we offer the Financial Peace University course by Dave Ramsey. Uh, that course is helpful uh, to help you get a hold of your finances, to work through debt, uh, and learn to be generous. So I would encourage you uh, to take that course if you haven't. But one question I think that we need to answer that, that flows out of grace-motivated giving is the question, how much should I give? How much should I give? Or another way to, to ask that question, which I, I find more helpful at times, how much should I keep? How do we answer that question? How much should I give? And how much should I keep? Well, there isn't an amount or percentage that's correct. Personally, I, I think tithing is a great principle. I think it's a great starting place for your giving to the local church, uh, but that's something you would have to personally work through and think about with God. Ultimately, the question of how much should I give, it's not a question of a percentage, and it's not a question of an amount. So let me give three principles that help guide how much we should give. First, giving should be our top budget item. It should be the first thing that we do with our income. Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. In these verses, we have the principle of the first fruits. Harvest time was payday for the farmer. The first fruits, meaning the, the first portion of the crop, the first portion of the farmer's payday belonged to God. So first fruits means that we start with giving. When we receive income, we, we give first, before we spend and before we save. Generous, grace-motivated giving is not what you have left over at the end of the month. It's not what's in your wallet when the offering comes by. It's line item number one in our budget. This proverb said that this is how we honor God with our wealth. This is how we put him first. As a Christian, we want to put God first in every area of our life. So we should put God first in our finances as well and honor him. So practically, that means that your giving might not be the highest amount in your monthly budget. For us, it's, it's about third after mortgage and food. We got a lot of mouths to feed. Um, may not be the biggest amount, but we honor God by giving that the highest priority. So we don't cut giving to do other things. And I cut other things before I cut giving. So first, giving should be your top budget item. Second, prayerfully and regularly evaluate what you give. One of the dangers is that we can treat giving like a box that we just check off. I gave my 50 bucks. I tithe out of every paycheck, whatever it is. Giving shouldn't be like a reoccurring monthly bill. 
but it should be something that we are always prayerfully evaluating. Connected with this is considering our giving compared to other spending categories in our budget. Comparing giving to car payment. Comparing giving to how much we go out to eat. Comparing giving to how much we spend on shopping or vacations. I'm not going to say there's a right or wrong on any of those, but evaluate them. Consider them. Are there issues in your heart and in your budget that you need to deal with? We should constantly and prayerfully evaluate what we give. Married couples should be regular conversation together in your marriage. If you're single, seek out your, your parents or someone from your small group that could help evaluate that and pray through that with you. Third, how much should you give? You should give enough that it impacts your life. The truth is, the more you give, the less you will have. That's why giving is sometimes called sacrifice. You are doing without stuff and experiences that you could have spent that money on when you give it away. So if your giving really doesn't impact your lifestyle very much, you may not be giving enough. It's where I think tithing's a good starting place for us. 10% is a pretty significant amount. When you tithe, it really impacts your lifestyle. Honestly, there are times when I think, you know what, if we didn't tithe, we could have a house that had another bedroom on it. If we didn't tithe, we, we could have a nicer car. If we didn't tithe, we'd have a jet ski. <laughs> but then I look around at the needs of our church, and I see the impact that my giving has. I consider that God has been very generous to me in sending Jesus. I remind myself of all the blessings that have come into my life through the sovereign hands of God and through his people. I think about all the ways that your generosity here in this church has blessed my family. And those thoughts of withholding from God, they, they quickly pass away. And so if you have never tried tithing, or if you have never given in a way that your lifestyle is impacted, I would challenge you for the next six months to try it. See what happens. See if you regret it, or see if God blesses you through it. See if God works in your heart through it. See what the harvest will be if you do that. We end today with verse 9. Verse 9 is a direct quote from Psalm 112. This psalm speaks of a man who loves and obeys God. This man's life is marked by mercy to the poor, by graciousness, by generosity, by goodness, by justice, by a confidence in God, no matter what life throws at him. 
This psalm shows us a man who understands the grace of God, who is motivated by the grace of God, and who, whose life overflows in generosity. I'd like to read most of this psalm as we close. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Then here Paul quotes this verse. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. The truth is, all of us can be like the man we read about in this psalm. Whether you're retired, whether you're in your working years, you're a student, or you're a broke college kid, all of us can be grace-motivated givers. The first lesson I ever learned about generosity was sometime when I was in elementary school. I had a, a skateboard and no income. And I always liked to take care of my staff, keep it in good shape. And a friend was over, and his family wasn't as well off as ours, and uh, he liked this skateboard, and my parents encouraged me to let him borrow it. That was hard for me to do. And when the skateboard was eventually returned, it was all scratched up. It had been left out in the rain, and it was pretty messed up. I remember feeling mad, angry. How could he treat my skateboard like that? But God used that situation to soften my heart, to begin to teach me to hold on loosely to my possessions, to be ready to lend and give generously, and it's something that I have never forgotten. May God's grace enable all of us to be a more generous people. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible love and your incredible generosity towards us. How we are so undeserving in our sin of you to send your son for us. But we praise you that, that you have done that very thing that we needed. We ask that we would understand that grace of our Lord Jesus in a greater way. And that that grace would overflow in our lives to be a more generous people, to motivate us 
in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.